one of the things that I do, really the only thing that I do with my spare time is um, I do, I work on my house. It's like a giant DIY project. I thought it'd be a really good idea to try to build my house by myself a few years back, and that's the mess that we're in. And so I'm constantly working on it. And one of the things that I, I do when I'm working on the house is I put my headphones in, and I have uh, a couple dozen podcasts that I listen to. And so I just listen to hours and hours of podcasts. Every week I'm listening to podcasts. And I came across one this week that I was listening to, and it was about love. And I thought, well, that's perfect, because that's the series that we're in, in a, in a series called Love Handles. And so um, I knew I was going to be speaking. I thought, oh, maybe there'll be something in here that I, I, uh, that I can use. Sure enough, before I even knew what I was speaking about, it, it, was, uh, it was so insightful. So here's what the story was. Uh, a popular podcast, and they were talking about a psychologist named Har, Har, let me see, it's either, yeah, Harry Harlow. Harry Harlow, and he was a psychologist in the 50s, and he set out to prove that children need love and affection from their parents, right? That doesn't, that's, it almost seems like, why would you need to prove that? What, that, that seems so obvious. And the reason why he had to set out to prove it is because the popular belief at the time that psychologists and pediatricians and even the government proposed was the exact opposite. So I did a little bit of research and I found an LA Times article that wrote about this and here's what they said. Until the mid-20th century, psychology was dominated by experts who insisted that affection wasn't important in parenting. They even argued that too loving a parent would damage a son or diminish a daughter. There are serious rocks ahead for the overkissed child, wrote 1920s child care guru John Watson. And so some of you guys hear this and you think, my parents must have read that book, right? I'm, yeah, I just wanted a hug, that's it. Um, no, but it's kind of a crazy, it's kind of a crazy thing to think uh, that people, these experts, especially parenting experts up until the 1950s believed that you should not cuddle or kiss or be overly affectionate with your children. Only on a rare occasion should you show this kind of affection and love. And so he had set out to prove that the exact opposite was true, and unfortunately, one of the evidences was what was happening in orphanages and hospitals, is kids who were experiencing the lack of affection and love from a parental figure were literally dying. And it wasn't because their physical needs weren't being met, they had all the care that they needed, um, but it's because there was some emotional need that wasn't being met. And it was this need of affection and love from their parents. And the, the story went on to talk about a recent example of an orphan named Daniel. And Daniel's from Romania. And he spent the first seven years of his life in an orphanage in one crib. And it was him and another kid that was around the same age as him. And because it was just, it was them two in a small crib, he couldn't, he couldn't lay down to sleep. He had to sit up sleeping. And so for seven years, um, the, only, the only times that he got out of his crib was to be fed or to be changed. He was in a giant room with a hundred other kids. There was one window in which they could look out and they could see people and cars and a city, but they never got to go outside. Until seven, years, until seven years into his life, he gets adopted by a family in Ohio. So he arrives and he experiences all the things that kids uh, would experience. He goes out and he gets to play outside for the first time. He has his own bed. He wears shoes. I mean, everything has, is changing for him. So for the first six months, things are going really well. Until one day he wakes up and he realizes what he's been missing. Not only has he been missing a biological family for the first seven years of his life, but he's been pretty mistreated. And so this anger starts to build in him and he starts to take it out on the people around him, his adoptive parents. 
And what happens is it gets so bad and he gets so angry. And for the years preceding this, um, he, he, they literally have to hire a bodyguard for the mom while the dad's at work because he's so violent and so angry. They empty out his room. There's only a match there because he's broken and thrown everything. Uh, he ends up pulling a knife out on his mother and they're constantly calling the police and they're looking for help in, in, anywhere that they can get it. They go to psychologists. They go to uh, social uh, workers. They go to the police. They, and everyone has the same response. This kid, you're just gonna have to give up on him. Put him in foster care and just let him grow up there because he is putting a strain on your life and your marriage and this is going to end badly. But they wouldn't give up on him and so they keep looking for help and they find a psychologist who, um, who works in this arena and he diagnoses him as having attachment disorder because for the first seven years of his life, he, he had no uh, parental figures. He had no love, no affection. He didn't even know the names of his caretakers. And so because he experienced this, he was unable to emotionally attach with people to, to experience love. And they said, well, you know what? We're going to try a new treatment. And the treatment is going to be that because he missed out on all of these things at the beginning of his life, we're going to recreate these things in hopes that maybe he can experience this bond and this trust and this love. And so they do something kind of crazy. For the next eight weeks, him and his adoptive mother cannot be more than three feet apart. And he is to be treated like a newborn child. So he can't ask for anything because newborns can't ask. Everything has to be given and he has to learn to trust that his mom's going to take care of him. And they have to do some really weird things. And by the way, he's like, uh, I think, 12 years old. He's taller, way bigger than his adoptive mother at this point. And they would do things like they had to stare in each other's eyes for hours. Because like, you know, if you've ever had a newborn at home, that's all you can do. <laughs> right? You look at it and you go, oh, you're so... <laughs> Okay, yeah, woo, you know, you just, you just look at them and they're fine, that, but that's it. And so they would, they, would, they, would, uh, they would cuddle on the couch. He would have to sit in his mom or his dad's lap and cuddle with them, which every 12-year-old is excited about. <laughs> and eventually, at first it was horrible. He hated it. He just wanted nothing to do this, with this. But eventually, as the weeks progressed, his barrier started to break down. And he said, okay, well, they're not that bad. And if you fast forward to the end of, uh, you know, kind of the end of the story, it didn't happen instantaneously. In fact, they said it was very, very slow. But eventually, at the end of his teenage years, he gets up in front of all of his peers and he gives a speech. And in this speech, he's, uh, he gets emotional and he talks about how he loves his adoptive parents, something in which they thought they would never hear from this child. Everybody else said, just give up on him. And so at the end of the day, the learning is kind of simple. The learning is what he was missing was love, and the solution was love. But that's a little bit too simplistic. I think it's more nuanced than that. What he was actually missing was not just love, but the, the Greek word for this would be storge. And so if you're, you haven't been here for the last couple weeks, we're in the middle of a series called Love Handles, and what we're doing is we're looking at different kinds of love and uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves, and he gives a different, uh, he gives the four Greek words for love, and he explores what they are. He says there's different types of, of love. And so last week we talked about this brotherly love. Today we're going to talk about storge, which is family or affectionate love. Next week, you don't want to miss this, we're going to talk about eros, which is romantic love. And then finally we're going to talk about agape, which is this Christian or, or, or God, God's love. Um, and so the, the thing that he was missing was this storge love. And we don't really think of love in those kinds of ways because we, we kind of abuse the term love, so it almost means nothing now in, in the English language, right? I can, in 
one sentence say, I love my wife, I love my kids, and I love a double-double. <laughs> I'm hoping those don't all represent the same thing, the same emotion that I have for all of them. Sometimes double-double is better than my kids, but um, <laughs> just kidding. And so the Greeks had these different, these different, as- or these different, uh, these different words that would give different aspects and, and different views and clarity to what kind of love we're talking about. So today we're talking about storge love, family love, affectionate love. The best way to explain this or, or to understand this is to point towards um, where it's most often seen, and the clearest example, which is between a parent and a child. It's this relationship that they have that is this storge love. And so let me give you three words to help explain it. This storge love is it's natural, it's necessary, and it's nurturing. Okay, so natural. If I were to come to you, and let's just say you had a child, and it's five minutes after this child is born, and they've swaddled this child, and you're holding it, and you're looking into this child's eyes. If I said to you, hey, do you, do you love that child? You would look back and say, more than I could have ever imagined. And and I might respond with, but why? Why do you love this child? In fact, it's only brought you pain up until this point. (laughs) It has not given you anything except for a lot of discomfort and a lot of pain. Why do you love this child? And you would say, because it's, it's my child. You can't explain it. Why? Because it's a natural love that you have. It's something that is not earned. They haven't done anything to deserve it but you love them more than you could have ever imagined. And it's because this storge love, it's intuitive, it's natural, it's something within us. It's also a, uh, a necessary love, as we saw from the opening story, that we need this kind of love, not just to have a great life or, or, or to get by, but we actually need it for survival. And then it's a nurturing love. It brings stability and comfort and security into our lives. But like any good gift, if we misuse it, there can be some consequences. And so storge love can be manipulated and it can be uh, misused. And if it is, there are, there are some, some consequences, one of which is if we withhold it or we manipulate this love, it has emotional, relational, and developmental consequences. And so if you're in a, a step study, you've been to CR, or maybe you've kind of done some of that, that, uh, uh, that work over time with a, a, a counselor or something like that, where you've discovered that you have some family of origin issues, and some of the things that you currently struggle with, maybe it's a commitment issue, maybe it's codependency, whatever it is, you can trace back to your family of origin in which they either withheld or manipulated you with this storge love. Also, it can be taken for granted. The people that we love the most are often the people that we take the most for granted because we have this attitude that, well, they have to deal with me. I'm their child. I'm their spouse. We're family. You can't get away from me. And so we end up taking them for granted and oftentimes um, in some pretty destructive ways. And then finally, it can be a very unhealthy relationship. Uh, For for some of us, the most toxic people in our life are our family members. These are the people um, that we feel like we should, we should continue to invest in and we should continue to love, which we should, but the consequence of that is because we feel so bonded to them, we allow them to bring us down, to be a toxic influence in our life. And so we struggle with how do I love them, but I also don't allow them to influence me. And so they can be some of the most unhealthy relationships we have. 
So the biblical family uh, is a great example of this. And I've said this a few times before, but it's always funny to me when we talk about becoming a biblical family, because anyone who has ever read the Bible would say, I, I do not want to be a biblical family because they're a disaster. You go through, especially the Old Testament, and you read about all the families, and you're like, my family looks awesome in comparison to those families. They are a mess. And so if we go into the scriptures and we look at kind of the original intention for the family, God really had only one family in mind. What he did was he said, look, we're going to have my family, the family of God, and we're going to be close, and we're going to be intimate, and I'm going to be the head of this family. And then you're going to go out, and you're going to create more family members. You're going to multiply. And so the biological family and the family of God were supposed to be one and the same. But we quick, quickly find out that Adam and Eve, they kind of messed this whole thing up because they decided to rebel against God and sin and death enter into the world. The biological family and the family of God, instead of being one, are divorced from each other. And the consequence of that divorce is that the biological family is now broken. And we see this right off the bat with uh, Adam and Eve's family. Their kids end up in the first recorded homicide, Cain and Abel. One brother kills the other brother. And that pattern continues on of this, this broken biological family throughout the Old Testament. I could sit here and we could give example after example. Let me just give you some, uh, uh, a list of sibling rivalries. This is not even just family drama. This is just sibling drama. Ishmael and Isaac. Uh, Ishmael and his mother Hagar are ended up cast out of the family because of jealousy. Esau and Jacob. Jacob steals his brother's blessing. Rachel versus Leah. Uh, if you're not a Bible person, you, you should be a Bible person. Because there is so much cool drama in the Old Testament. Like, there is some stuff where you'll go, I can't believe that's in there. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you where it's at. You're going to have to find it. But Rachel versus Leah. Um, the story is that these are two sisters. They end up marrying the same man. The way that they do this is they trick him into sleeping with one and then the other. Told you, it's scandalous. Uh, Joseph versus his brothers, he's sold into slavery. Abimelech versus his brothers, he's got 70 brothers in total, half and full brothers, and he ends up killing all 70 of them so that he can become king. And that is nothing in comparison to King David's family. King David's family is such a disaster. Jerry Springer could have made his career off of them alone. Because here's what happens. He has a bunch of kids, and uh, it, it, the kind of the initial drama starts with one of his kids, Amnon, and another one, Tamar. And I'm going to try not to be graphic with this, but what happens is Amnon sexually abuses his sister Tamar because he uh, is in love with her. And the, another brother, Absalom, hears about what happens between them two. And so he goes and he kills his brother on, uh, on behalf of his sister, and this, in turn, then creates even more family conflict, in which David now is in a dispute with his son because he killed his other son, who is now trying to defend his, other, his daughter, and it almost splits the entire nation in half. It is a civil war within Israel in which thousands of people die, and it all came from this family drama. And here's what I love, is if you fast forward from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament is Matthew. It's the gospel in which it talks about Jesus' life and ministry. And the first chapter of Matthew is a summary of all the people that are in Jesus' family and what a disaster they are. 
Like, it's very clear that Matthew's intention when he lists all the family members is not just to give uh, the lineage of who Jesus comes from, but is to point out some very specific and awkward stories uh, in Jesus' family, where he goes out of his way to point out, do you remember this person? Well, what about him? Well, what about her? And so the message is very clear throughout the Old Testament and then the beginning of the New that the human family is broken. And so it doesn't matter what uh, kind of family you come from. You might come from the Cleavers. Why was it only the boomers who understood the Cleavers? <laughs> All right, um, let's see. How about the, you got the Cleavers, you got the, the Bradys? Still no, okay. Um, the Keatons. The Bundys. The Simpsons? Modern family? Okay, fine, whatever. Anyway, it doesn't matter what kind of family you come from. They're all going to be imperfect. They're all going to be broken to some degree. So I think that I come from a great family. And I remember growing up as I, uh, I would get in disputes with my dad, and I'd be like, Dad, you're just, you're screwing up, man. Like, you are messing this deal up as a parent. And his response would always be the same. He would say, Cody, I've never done this before. And you're, you're right. I am messing this up. That's why you're the practice run, and we're going to do better on your sister. <laughs> All right? <clears throat> so Jesus comes along, and, and we have this history of the family being broken. And he says, guys, this, this is such a mess. The human family is such a mess that we can't just, like, we can't just make a couple tweaks and fix this. We're going to have to restart this deal. And so there's a passage in John in which he's having a conversation with a a religious leader named Nicodemus. And here's what he says to him. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. If this is the first time you've ever heard this before, or, uh, or you're Nicodemus, you're thinking, okay, hold on, time out. You're telling me if I want to enter into the kingdom of God, I have to be born again. Now we got 2,000 years of kind of somewhat understanding what this means, but just think about it as the first time you've ever heard, the first time this has ever been said before. You're going, oh, uh, I need to do. In fact, that's what Nicodemus said. He didn't say, oh, uh, but he said this. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Ah, oh. <clears throat> puberty. Um, I told you I'm losing my voice. I'm hoping to make it through the service. Okay. Uh, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And so he asked the question that everybody's thinking, which is, I'm old. How am I... And then he paints this, or he starts to kind of point us towards some really weird imagery about being back in your mother's womb, and you're like, nap, time out, we're not going there. That's about to get really weird. And so Jesus then uh, answers his question. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So in essence, what he's saying here is that you have to be reborn spiritually, that you need a, a renewal, a cleansing to your very core, to your spirit. Because up until this point, remember, this is a really religious guy. He follows all the rules. He knows the scriptures. He does everything that he's supposed to do. And Jesus is calling him out and saying, so all the things that you're doing in order to try to earn God's favor, in order to, to make your way into heaven by doing good things, none of that is going to work. Like the situation is so bad that you are rotten to your core. And so by you trying to be a better person, that's like putting lipstick on a pig. It still is what it is at the end of the day. And so you're going to need to be made new. You're going to need a total renewal from the inside out. You're going to have to become a new person. 
if you fast forward to the end of this, uh, this chapter, we see one of the most uh, famous chapters in, in the scriptures says this, John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so Jesus is answering the question. He says, you want to know how to be born again? Well, that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to make a way for you to have this spiritual rebirth. And, and he doesn't know it yet. Nicodemus doesn't know this yet. But the way that it's going to happen is through Jesus' death on the cross. Because Jesus is going to die on the cross. And although he was sinless and deserved no punishment, he was going to take the punishment that all of us, who are very imperfect people, deserve. And then what he offers is he says, now I'll trade places with you. You've lived a very imperfect, destructive life. I have lived a perfect one. I have stepped in and taken your punishment, so I will trade your punishment, I will trade your life for mine. And it's a gracious gift. Do you want this trade? If so, accept it, meaning you give your life over to him. And so the uh, benefit of this is not simply that we are forgiven and given eternal life, although that is huge. There is something more immediate than that. that. That feels like it's something out there. And yes, that gives us incredible hope and that gives us a future. And, and yet there are some things that happens in the here and now as we make this trade, as we make this exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. That somehow when you give your life over to Christ, that he gives you, that he makes you new, that you become a new person, that spiritually that you are transformed, you're given a new spirit, and with that spirit you're given a new identity, a new hope, a new heart, and the old person that you once were is now gone. That somehow you are forgiven of all the things that you've done, and the things that you were enslaved to previously you no longer have to be enslaved to. That he gives you this power of the Holy Spirit that you don't have to live the life that you lived previously. Now, we are, we are granted this forgiveness and it is instantaneous, but to live this out takes a lifetime. This is what the uh, process of sanctification is, kind of a big theological word, is becoming more like Jesus. Living our life, becoming who we've already been uh, deemed or, or, or called uh, to be. And so the other uh, thing that happens is, and we see this example in John 1, is it says that, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but God. And so he says, when you become this new person, you are then reconciled to your heavenly father and you become a child of God. That means that you now have a new father. Your new father is your creator, your heavenly father. And one of the benefits of having this new father, this heavenly father, is now you are adopted into a new family as well. And Jesus, um, he, he talks about this in Matthew 12. The scene is kind of interesting where Jesus is talking to a bunch of people and his, his family's waiting outside. His mother and his brothers are outside and they're looking for him. And so somebody says, hey, um, you know that your mom and your, your brothers, they're looking for you. And his response is kind of surprising. Here's what he says in verse 48. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so what he does here is pretty, pretty revolutionary. He redefines who your true family is. He says your true family is not those that you were uh, that you're blood related to, the family that you're born into. Your first and true family is your family of faith. Which, which makes sense, because check this out. 
The family that you were born into, you will, you will live in that family for your lifetime. But the family of faith you will live with for eternity. And so he says that your family of faith is your true and your first family. Now, the hope is that those two are one in the same. That your family of faith and your biological family are one in the same. But at the end of the day, he's teaching us something pretty crazy, something that actually may rub us the wrong way, which is our true and first family is going to be our family of faith. The, uh, the word storgos or storge is used only three times in the New Testament, one of which is the compound word philostorgos, meaning uh, tender love and affection and devotion to one another. And the context that it talks about this kind of affection and love towards others is not in the context of a biological family, but it's in the context of the church family. It says that you should have this kind of tender love and affection, this family affection for other church members, other people of the faith first century took this really serious, and they began to, to live this out. And um, for some of them, this was their only family. Their biological family had rejected them when they became Christ followers, and so the church, the family of faith, was their only family. And Lucian, a critic who was kind of watching all of this take place and watching how they, they loved each other and what this community started to become, and uh, he didn't like it. Here's what he had to say. Their first lawgiver, talking about Jesus, persuaded them that they are all brothers of one another. After they had transgressed once for all by de denying the Greek gods and by worshiping that crucified sophist himself and living under his laws. So he watched them and he goes, can you believe it? Their leader dies and he has convinced them that they're all this one big family now. And so now they're starting to live like this is their primary family. And so the unconditional love that they have for one another, that, that they be, they're totally transparent, that there's nobody who is in need, that, that, they, that their love for each other transcends any of the, the things that divide culture. Because you've got to realize, and this still happens today, is, is many people are divided by class and by race and by age and by gender, and they will hang out with people who are like them. But the Christian community was so different because people would watch and they would say everyone was together and they were seen as equals. They had love and affection for people whom you wouldn't want to even be seen with. There was something different about that. They actually do believe that this, is, that this is true. And the church began to grow because of it. As people watched how they loved one another, they thought, well, maybe then they, they're on to something. Because, like, that's the family that I've always wanted. That's the family that I've always desired. And as I see them, it became a testament to the truth of that, that their, their father in heaven really was their father, and they really were uh, a family of God. And so people started to take notice and wanted to be a part of it. And as the church grew, the biological family became more healthy, especially when the whole household was a household of believers. Because as they began to love their faith community more and their biological family became a part of that, they grew closer together. And then they started to look in the scriptures of what God had intended originally for the family and they thought, wow, this is totally different than the way we've been acting. Because within that culture, you have to realize that women and children were seen as second class. That men had all the authority, they had all the power, and that women and children, they were to submit and they could do whatever they, so one example would be like the way that um, they viewed marriage was that uh, a man had all the power, a woman had none. So if a man wanted to divorce his wife, all he had to say was, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you three times, we're divorced, done, good luck to you. If a woman wanted to divorce a man, she couldn't, no matter what. 
And so the belief that Jesus died for everyone equally, remember that he came and he died for all, that everyone has access, that everyone gets to be citizens in the kingdom of God, they started to apply that and went, well, that means that men and women and children, that he died for all of us. He didn't just die for the men and then maybe a couple ladies. No, 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 this is all. So that means that all of us are equal in God's kingdom. That means we have to start acting like that. And they started to look into what God had for marriage and, and they thought, oh my goodness, we've been doing this all wrong. Men, we gotta start respecting and, and loving our wives, not treating them like they're our servants. Women, we have to serve our, our, our husbands and, and it began to revolutionize their families. And then culture changed because as the family changes, culture will follow. And so as the Christian faith began to grow and as their families began to transform, it began to spread throughout culture. And eventually, you know, it spread throughout the entire world. And here's something that's kind of crazy is everywhere that the Christian worldview, that the biblical worldview has spread, it has brought a system of beliefs and values to it. One of which is this value of equality. Big buzzword for us today, by the way, equality. And it is all founded on this whole scriptural idea that we're all created equally in, uh, in God's image, and that, so we should be treated that way. The two other references to storge is a storge, meaning no love, no family affection. And in the context, it's talking about that as a person and a culture drifts further away from God and from a biblical worldview, one of the consequences will be that they will start to lose their affection and love for their family. Now, if you apply this to the situation that we find ourselves in, as we are, as a culture, becoming more secular, but definitely in the West as a whole, we've become far more secular over the last 50 years, we see that this is actually happening. So let's take a couple examples. First one, marriage. The more secular a society becomes, um, the less we value getting married and staying married. So if you were to look at the trends over the last 50 years, obviously divorce has gone way up. And if you're a, a millennial, you'll, you may know that there's less and less of us who desire to get married. Probably a correlation there. And, and the same is true of children. Is in the United States right now, we are at our lowest birth rate in our history. Because as we drift away from a biblical foundation and worldview, we start to desire a spouse and children and, and have this family affection. I think the clearest example is... Uh, is what has happened, and, and by the way, as a side note, one of the worst consequences of drifting away from a biblical worldview is that the women and children will always be the one that suffers the greatest. In any culture that does not come from the scriptures and have a biblical worldview, it's always going to be women and children that suffer the most. So think about it. In the 60s, we had this thing called the sexual revolution. Okay, everybody go, sleep with whoever you want. And then we also began devaluing marriage as a consequence of that. And so now, uh, because of, these, uh, because of these, uh, this new uh, way of thinking and living, there have been millions and millions of unwed pregnant women. And so they're, they're left with two choices. They can either have an abortion or they can be single mothers. Now, I think that one is obviously a much clearer choice than the other, but the consequences will be for the woman and the child because women and children always are going to suffer the most as we gravitate away from a biblical worldview. And so when I think about not only those consequences, but not to mention the emotional, physical, relational consequences that we see if we drift away from this, you kind of become overwhelmed. But I think the question is, 
how do we fix this? How do we fix this on a cultural level, but more importantly, how do we fix this in our own homes? What are we supposed to do to make sure that this doesn't happen to, to us and to the people that we love? And if we were to look at the first century church, I think it gives us a really good example of how we can transform not only culture, but our families. And that begins with making sure that the primary issue has been addressed. What's the primary issue? Well, if you go back to the very beginning, what was God's intention? To be a part of his family first. And so the way that we're going to fix our families and the families of those around us and our community and the people that we love, it's got to start with addressing the primary issue, which is, are you a part of the family of faith or not? Have you been reconciled with your heavenly father? Because you're not going to be able to truly fix any of the other things unless you fix that issue first. And so some of us, we've never become a part of this, this family. We've never entered into this relationship with with Christ. And if that's you, man, the best thing that you can do, the best thing that you can do is say, you know what? I'm tired of being this cosmic orphan. I want to be reconciled with my heavenly father. And Jesus gives us that opportunity. And if that is you, I I pray that you would make that commitment today, that you would simply confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that you can be reconciled with your heavenly father. That would be my, that would be my ultimate prayer for you. And I do believe that as that happens, something's going to transform in your life, and it might be your family. Because I can give you story after story of families that have changed in this church because they got right with God, and because they were able to get right with God, their other relationships began to change as well. They were given a power to be able to forgive, to reconcile. They were given a new purpose. They were given a new spirit, a new heart. There's some of us that have made this commitment before, but let's be honest. We haven't been great family members. Here's a fun question for you to discuss on your way home today. What kind of family member are you in the family of God? In this, this local manifestation of God's family of faith, this is it. We're family. We're brothers and sisters. What kind of family member are you, really? Because here's the danger. Some of you guys, and this might be a little offensive, and I kind of mean it, is you've been in this family a deadbeat dad meaning you show up on holidays or when it's, uh, when it's convenient. You come, you stay for a little while, you say hi, and then you're out. Some of you guys have been like children. Feed me. Change me. Me. Oh, this is getting, this is getting awkward. This is getting awkward. <laughs> oh, the parking lot is going to be so fun after this. But some of you guys, and yeah, I like to pick on, on us, and we've all been there. Some of you guys are, are incredible. Some of you guys have been, I think the, now, the closest thing would be that you have been adult children in this family, meaning you're pulling your weight. You're making change happen. You've jumped in, you've said, I'm a part of this family. Where can I serve? Where can I give back? How can I make this family better? How can I make this family bigger? I want more people to be a part of this family because the transformative love that we experience that we all desire, I know, can be found here and then it's going to change all the different arenas of my life. And so how can I help? Where can I be plugged in? How can I go deeper? And so my challenge for you, wherever you might be, is to figure out what kind of family member you are and what kind of family member you want to become. You want to be a part of the family? We welcome you with open arms and we want you so badly to be a part of this family. You've been on the outskirts and you kind of been more of a consumer than a contributor. Okay, let's, let's step it up. Wherever you're at in this, in this journey, I want you to ask, where am I at? What kind of family member am I? 
And what can I do to be a little bit better? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the fact that we get to call you our Heavenly Father. So many of us, we come from uh, broken homes. All of us come from imperfect families. And yet you call us your children, that you have adopted us, that we become heirs in your kingdom. And Lord God, when that reaches to the depths of our heart, that changes us. That allows us to view ourselves totally different, that we, that we are, are, are your children whom you love. And that enables us to love other people, including our families, even better. And so, Lord God, if there is somebody in this room who has never entered into that relationship with you, I pray that right now they would just confess that in their hearts, that they want to know you, that they want to be a part of your family, that they want you to be their heavenly father, and they want to be reconciled. For those of us who have made that commitment, but maybe we have been acting as consumers in this family, Lord, that we would mature and that we would take the next step to whatever it is that you want us to do. And ultimately, our goal here is to be a loving, affectionate, beautiful family and to make this family bigger. And so, Lord God, we thank you. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.